You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is Paul Merriman, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. I used to think it was too complicated. Investing. I was a busy young doctor and handed my portfolio to one of those fancy financial advisors. I owned over 50 different stocks and funds. Too complicated. Certainly something a busy professional like me didn't have the time to fully understand. And then I dove down the personal finance rabbit hole. I traded in my 50 stocks and funds and eschewed complexity in favor of simplicity. One fund two funds, three funds, a total market index, a total international index, and some bond funds. Perfect was the enemy of good. I was willing to leave some percentage of returns on the table, but should I have? Is there a middle ground between simplicity and complexity? And more importantly, how much does that extra 0.5% of returns matter? Today, we talk about seven of the biggest investment decisions according to one trusted expert. Paul Merriman is a nationally recognized authority on mutual funds, index investing, and asset allocation. After retiring in 2012 from Merriman Wealth Management, which he founded in 1983, Paul created the Merriman Financial Education Foundation, dedicated to providing investors of all ages with free information and tools to make informed decisions in their own best interest and successfully implement the retirement savings program. Paul Mirriman, welcome back to Earn and Invest. Before we get to the seven of the biggest investment decisions, I feel like everyone is talking about how equities returns are going to be poor over the next bunch of years. We always like to say this recession or this downturn is going to be different. Do investment strategies change with the times, or is there more of a basic truth to how we should invest? Well, Jordan, it's great to be back. And I I will tell you, this is, in essence, one of the most important decisions that investors make. Because if you are in that state of mind where you are constantly trying to reevaluate what is going on now and what impact that might have on a portfolio, We are in the world of predictions. And the fork in the road that I want investors to think long and deep about is, am I going to believe in the past and build on the past, or am I going to look to somebody who will help me predict for the future? Because we typically feel kind of alone when we're trying to predict. So we look for help. And I don't care if it's Jim Cramer or or Ken Fisher, you know, we're looking for help. And the problem with the prediction business is the people who are in it are really good at making their case. And you come away feeling like I got to short the market like mad or <laughs> I got I to you know pile in because there's big money to be made. That is the wrong way to think about investing, at least as far as I'm concerned, because how do you how do you rate these different predictors? How do you decide one month that you believe one, another month you believe another? And because they all sound so good, it's easy to understand why people get hung up in that. I want people 
to look at 50, 100 years worth of data and look how difficult it was to know one year at a time would big be better than small, small better than all of this value growth, U.S. international. And what you learn without any question, if you look at it carefully, is you get yourself diversified over the right asset classes and just stay the course, ignore the business of predictions. I want to talk about some of these universal rules that, of course, tie into diversification and the different asset classes. But two big questions. Let me start with the first one. Is there really a place for stock picking for your average investor? I mean, so a lot of times we talk about these large index funds, and that's kind of where we want to put our money. Does it make sense for us to start thinking about individual stock picking? Well, I don't think so. But but you, you might ask me, oh, what kind of an investor are you? And I would say, <laughs> I invest to get a decent return with a, a, a certain amount of risk exposure. I do not invest one penny for fun. I do not speculate for fun. I owned GameStop. I had a fairly good position in GameStop under $10 a share, but it happened to be in an index fund that I owned, not because I found GameStop. And so my view is if you know, if you know that you've got money to speculate with, because so often along with individual stocks comes an emotional attachment and so often comes speculation rather than investment, because again, you're, you're thinking short term. Usually, my view is that you got to figure out, do I have enough money that I can have some fun? I can take 10% and just play the market. Well, if you don't do well, will that change the end of your life? Well, you spend a lot of time talking about end of life, Jordan. And, and the fact is, is the memories of the good stocks that they had probably is rarely a topic of discussion. But boy, does it feel good if in the moment you beat those big guys. <laughs> I don't have any desire to beat the big guys. Yeah, the joy is fleeting, it sounds like. But I want people to take note. Note, Paul Meerman, noted investment advisor, learned gentleman who's been looking at these things for decades and decades, does not stock pick. The other question that always jumps up ahead that people want to debate endlessly, and I just wanted to get your take on it, is dividends. How important is dividend investing? I hear half the population thinks it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. The other half says it's forced distributions, forks taxation. Where do you fall on the dividend spectrum? Well, as it turns out, I have a lot of dividends in the funds that the index funds that I own. So that is a part of my life, but I didn't set out to invest with dividends as an, a necessary aspect of the decision process. The best that I know as far as discussing that has come out of Larry Swedrow. He does a terrific job of, of talking about the two, and you can make the case either way. I mean, it's, it's like the old saying, whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. Well, in a <laughs> sense, whichever way you go, probably going to be all right. And I understand the idea that people who want to be prepared for the worst of times, they can say, well, at least I got the dividend. <laughs> and so yeah. I can, I'm willing to sit there and wait as long as I've got the dividend. And I just don't belong to, to that camp because the studies that I look at say, look, you could just take money out of, of these portfolios, maybe more tax efficiently, and live on them. But it means you got to do something as opposed to somebody sending you the dividends, like having a pension fund where they just send you the money every month versus investing and deciding what you're going to take out yourself. So you hear, heard it here first, dividend investing, it's a toss-up. We can stop debating it endlessly and move on. <laughs> I'm quoting you, Paul, for that one, even though that okay. was me who just said that. So let's get to the seven of the biggest investment decisions. Number one is best equity asset classes. So which asset classes and which are best? This gets back to that question I kind of pondered in the intro. 
So let's start with that question. How much does a 0.5% difference matter, right? Because we're saying if we really figure this out, if we get ourselves in the best equity classes, maybe we can tilt ourselves up a few, you know, percentages of a percent, right? How much does that matter? Well, first of all, let me make sure that that the reality is based on history, it could easily be 2% a year without, I love this, without substantially more risk. And, and, and that's something that if you wish to talk about along the way, I think it's an important aspect, but, but the, I, I was tainted. I was, I was lured in to buy and hold way back in the nineties by the people at Dimensional Funds, Fama and French work. And I just thought it was an amazing story. And we built a, 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 an article that we update every year with the numbers and whatnot on combining these equity asset classes that the academic industry has, has dubbed to be worthy of investment. So is large cap blend worthy? Absolutely. That would be the S&P 500. The same would be true of the international uh, asset class of similar kinds of stocks. Small cap value, large cap value, REITs, emerging market. I mean, there are, these are all blessed by the academic community. And I took the approach then that, okay, that's a great idea, but I don't want to place any bets. What if I just spread the money 10% amongst the 10 equity asset classes that they gave me. I did not go out and discover these. They gave them to me. And that's how I built an investment advisory firm, was building portfolios of 10 different equity asset classes. And then because of a guy who joined our organization, our foundation in 2016, and, and John Bogle wagging his finger at me saying, Paul, <laughs> you cannot expect people to deal with 10 different equity asset classes. That may be fine if you're going to charge them 1% a year, but you've got to make it simpler. And what came out of Chris Pedersen and John Bogle was a relook by our organization at all of these asset classes. And could they be reconfigured to be two, three, four, five, instead of 10. And the outcome of the studies, and we take them all the way back to 1928, the outcome is that you can do what those academics did with two or three or four rather than 10. So for do-it-yourselfers in particular, this is a great answer because you're, you're getting what the academics enticed you with because they never say they know what the future is going to be. They just say we're experts on the past. And of course, there is no risk in the past. We always know what we should have done. So they have an advantage in that regard. But we've looked at this inside and out. We have all sorts of studies on our website, how to combine these different asset classes and what have long-term returns been and the risk taken. But I do believe that identifying those 10 asset classes is important as foundation for building the rest of, of, of what you're going to do with the growth part of your portfolio. We're not expecting bonds to help us get rich. We're expecting bonds to keep us from getting poor. And, and, and so equities are important. And so that's the starting point. But once we identify them, we have to look at really what is the second most important thing that we do in our work is show people how to combine them. Because there are people out there who just swear by the total market index, not even international, just the U.S. only. That's all you need. You've got enough value. You've got enough small there. It, it replicates the the cap-weighted market, and that's that's as good as it probably needs to be. Well, I struggle with the idea of good enough. I'm a believer in more than enough, and I mean that as aggressively as I can say that, not because I want you to take more risk. I'm not looking for that, but we build our dreams, 
I think about those people you talked to in the last part of their lives, Jordan. I'm, I, in a way, I'm envious because you've had conversations that uh, I just think would teach some powerful lessons. But, but Jordan, to get to your basic question about that half a percent, it's important because I deal with a lot of college kids and people in their 20s and their 30s, and an extra half a percent over a lifetime can be for somebody who puts away $6,000 a year for 40 years, there are a lot of people going to do that. Over their lifetime, an extra million to $2 million. And let me tell you where that comes from. So people don't think of that's ridiculous. It comes because the first return that you get on your money is the money you take out in retirement. Up until that point, it's all blue sky. But then you turn the blue sky into making your days better because you get income from it. All of that income needs to be totaled up and be part of what you made as an investor. And then you die. And when you die, you leave money to others. The total return of my investments will be what my wife and I took out for ourselves, for our family, whatever we did to, to distribute. And then what we'd leave at the end, that is the total return. And when I talk about an extra million to $2 million, I am talking about a lifetime of investing impact on what we have to spend and what we have to leave. And I think when we think about it in those terms, it becomes more important not to pay too much in expenses, not to pay for turnover and taxes that are, un there's there's half a percent all over the place. And, and so we want to find them all if we can. So you mentioned even before this idea that with the best equity classes, we may actually have a premium of as much as 2%. You and I were just talking about even just an extra 0.5%. We tend to benchmark with either the S&P 500 or total stock market index. Originally, your belief was, 10 asset classes, 10% each, that's going to be really the best equity mix. As of late, we've realized that, hey, it's really hard to get people to concentrate on putting everything into 10 separate asset classes. So now we're really talking about two or three different asset classes or two or three different types of equities mixed together that can cover all the asset classes. Tell us about what the modern simple portfolio looks like and what the premium is over, let's say, just putting your money in an S&P 500 or total stock market index? Well, we have lots of tables on, on that, but let me give you the bottom line of, of because we have many different uh, portfolios, but a real simple one is half in the S&P 500 and half in small cap value. And what do you get? Well, you get lots of exposure to value. And small and large value generally move together, but small value moves up more. And by the way, sometimes large value goes down more. I mean, it's, it's not all given to turn out the same as you might expect. But, but if you have half your money in, in U.S. value, it doesn't mean it wouldn't be good to have some international value, but historically, those premiums kind of happen at the same time. And lots of people have found that to be true. With the S&P 500, you get the old standby. You get the thing you can trust. You can get the thing where you know the companies when you open up the list of their, their top 20 holdings and know that you've got your money in large cap, basically growth. Yeah, there's, there's value in the portfolio, but because it's cap-weighted, it's really the growth that's driving that return. So here you have, and I'm not, I'm not saying you should be all of your investments in small cap value in the S&P 500, but here's what I know. That there's some really great news in this for investors. Over the last 52 years, the compound rate of return of the S&P 500 or the total market index, because they're virtually the same, is about 11%. If you looked at the rate of return of the combination 50-50 S&P small cap value, it's 12.7. Wow. 1.7. We got three of those half a percent sitting there potentially looking at us for the long term. Now. What about risk? 
we have a fellow that runs, he's our director of analytics, Daryl Balls. He, I'll ask him for a table and he figures out a way to make that table that it's got at least a dozen lessons or it isn't worth his time. But one of the amazing lessons, he broke out all of the years that the S&P 500 and the combination of the S&P 500 small cap value were up. And as you would expect, they had about the same number of up years, but the average year on the upside was bigger for the combination because small cap value has historically paid a higher premium. But now we're worried about the downside. Well, if you add up all of the negative years over that 52 years, the total for the S&P 500 was 130, I'm sorry, 140%. The total for the combination was less. I think about 19% less. So what that says is you could say, oh, yes, one day at a time, the small cap value and S&P 500 as a combo are going to be more volatile, but we're not investing for one day. We're not even investing for a decade. We're investing for 30, 40, 50 years. I'm about to make an investment. And boy, is it on my mind right now for a newborn child in the coming months. Mm. And I'm putting money away for that little kid, the first granddaughter in the family. And I've struggled. Which of these portfolios do I want it to be in? And I have chosen that combination of the S&P 500 and small cap value, even though I believe from everything that I know that she would make more in small cap value only. And she's got a 90-year run ahead of her. So we don't have to worry about even a 30-year return in, in essence. But I'm also thinking about how she's going to feel when small cap value is out of favor. Yeah, And so I'm thinking, okay, we'll give up something. Maybe we'll give up over 1% additional return, maybe even a little more in exchange for a peace of mind that will come from having half of that money in the S&P 500. And then there's another decision that comes out of this that I think is great fun to rebalance or not to rebalance. (laughs) Because if she doesn't rebalance, and my daughter is taking care of this portfolio up until the point it can start going into Roth IRAs, but but I'm going to recommend no rebalancing. Because my belief is that way she has this great position in the large cap blend, but the chance to let that small cap value, if it's all it's built to be, to go ahead and, and, and do what it's supposed to do. So we are talking about the seven of the biggest investment decisions. Investment decision one is choosing the best equity classes. We've just systematically argued that just S&P 500 leaves a little return on the table. And by adding in things like small cap value, you can have an oversized return. In this case, a 50-50% mix gives you 1.7% historically more return, which is huge because we had just talked about what a 0.5% difference would make. The second of the biggest investment decisions is how much to invest in each equity class. You know, everyone talks about that small cap value tilt, right? And I've heard you even say, like, talked about the 90-10 portfolio. On the other hand, right now, you're talking about a 50-50 portfolio, right? S&P 550, small cap value 50. How do we decide how much to put or what percentage to put in each equity class, even if we're doing something as simple as two? Well, we have a table that shows 100% S&P 500 on one side of the page. And there are 10 columns and 100% small cap value on the other side of the page. And we show you the year-by-year results from 1970 through 2021. And we can look then at this idea of putting 10% into the small cap value you can see what it did to the return over that 52-year period, 0.4% a year. Okay, we're on our way to 0.5 just by adding 10%. And if you looked at the standard deviation, the same. If you looked at the worst 12 months 
six tenths of one percent difference. Mm -hmm. If you looked at the worst drawdown, about nine tenths of one percent difference. So the average investor is not even going to know there was a difference because by the time it's down 50%, you know, whether it's 51 or 49, it's feeling bad, but you're not judging the last one half of 1% decline. You've just accepted a big drawdown as a part of the process. So you then start moving across the table. And you go as far to the right as you can. For example, if if I'm talking to a young investor, I'm okay if they go all the way to the right and invest in small cap value for the early years. I have no problem with that because there are two things that can happen, and they're both good. It can be a really good time for small cap value. And you learn the lesson early. Hey, this is a good place to have some of my money. Now, what you're always afraid of is maybe they'll get too confident and make it all small, all, you know, forever. But that's fine if they have a good experience. On the other hand, young people, if they don't understand it, this is one of the most important things about investing when you're young, is the best thing that can happen is small cap value has a terrible 10 years, and you're gobbling up all of these shares of small cap value funds at reduced prices. I mean, Warren Buffett would be in the front row applauding for you because that is in your self-interest to do. On the other hand, we know what happens to so many investors. They are just feeling depressed because they're putting money in there and it's not making money. And I did this so I would make money. They got to look at it both ways because it's like building a business. I can tell you from having built several businesses, those early years can be ugly, but they can be, they can be leveraged to a much brighter future, which is what you're trying to do when you're an early investor. So ideally, it almost sounds like young people should start way on the side of small cap value. And as you grow over the decades, start adding in the S&P 500 so that as you hit retirement, you're a lot more S&P 500 than small cap. But that was done over many years of slowly adding that in. And Chris Pedersen, who's our director uh, of research, he's the one who developed the two funds for life, the combination of the small cap value and a target date fund, which which I too think is a great strategy for a young person. And it heavy heavily overweights small cap value in the early years and then automatically starts pairing back the small cap value to put more in the large cap growth. Let's move to the next big investment decision. Right now, we've really been talking all equities. But then comes along the question of how much goes in equities and how much in fixed income. You know, I've heard so many different bond strategies over the year based on your age, et cetera. Do you have a good rule of thumb to try to figure out percentage of fixed income versus equities? Well, it, it, I do. I have lots of them, by, by the way, Jordan. And that's, <laughs> that's a problem because it becomes more complex. Remember, I'm trying to help do-it-yourselfers build a lifetime strategy. And it isn't just about how they invest, but how they balance between fixed income and equities uh, in the terms of a glide path. So, so you, I think, need to start out with where do I want to be at age 65, if that's the, the retirement? Do I want to be 50-50, 60-40, 40-60? And, and, and certainly, you could, just simp- you could go out and look at target date funds that that do it that way and you can see how they transfer from equities to fixed income over a lifetime that's an that is a legitimate way because then you simply need to find one that ends up with 60 40 for example i think a black rock is 60 40 at age 65 i think that if i'm not mistaken that that uh, vanguard is 50 50 so you will find one of these target dates. On the other hand, the thing I hate about target date funds is for the first 20 years, they put these young people in 10% in fixed income. 
Now, BlackRock doesn't, but Vanguard does. And so that's an important thing to know. But so you might even find not only how that particular target date fund, its glide path gets you to 65, but how does it handle the first 10 or 20 years? Now, that would be one way. Take a little bit of study, but you'd find one that feels like you. By the way, what do we know feels like us when we're 25 and we're talking about age 65? This is part of this whole process that I find so humorous is we're trying to tell stories about people who really don't know what their life's going to be a week from now. So, But we still think it's worth the effort to do that. If you want something that's an automated like a hundred, when I came into the industry, it was a hundred less your age. And so if you were 20, you were going to be 80% in equities, you're going to be 20% in bonds. And then people started saying, no, it should be 110. And then somebody said it should be 120. <laughs> and I'll tell you for what I want, because I don't want young people in, in fixed income. Fixed income hurts you. Fixed income keeps you from investing in whatever amount there is in low-priced equities when the market goes down. They're pretending that Vanguard is going to make you feel good when the market goes down, that there's 10% in bonds. It's not going to feel good because you should know that you're missing the opportunity to buy good stuff cheap in your, young, your early years. So I would say to deal with that, I would say 130 minus your age. Now, that isn't even perfect for what I'm looking for, but that means at least you're 100% equities until you're 30, and then you're going to be going in slowly to add fixed income from 30 to 40. So you're going to have gotten most of what I wanted for you. But basically, I guess, personally, what I would say is stay all equities until you're 40. Could even be longer than that, but I would go to 40. and then. Every five years, if you're conservative, add 8% in fixed income. If you're moderate, add 7%. If you're aggressive, add 6%. And you'll be able to see where you're going to end up fixed income-wise by adding so much every five years. Just do it once every five years would be fine. But the point is, is there are so many ways to slice and dice that. What I advocate, whatever your way is, that it is based on knowing the risk that you take in doing it and then being automatic, make it systematic, make it, make it a formula-based. You know, your work, I kept looking in your book for the numbers, but really the book was not about the numbers. In fact, when I when I I saw the title "Speculation versus Investment," and I thought, "Oh, we're going to see a lot of numbers here," but no, that's <laughs> not what I saw because your view is not about the numbers; it's about the person. My view is it's all about the numbers because I'm never going to have a chance to be with you as an advisor. That's what advisors do; they deal with the person, not the numbers. They then tell the people what the numbers should be, but they've got to be focused on the person. And the do-it-yourself person needs help understanding themselves because, because we're all tainted with these things we learned as young people, and then we carry that. And when I was, when I was young, I was afraid. Why was I afraid? Because if I made mistakes, I got physically punished. I stayed afraid most all of my life. And those are things that have got to be part of how we invest, at least from my viewpoint. We are talking to Paul Merriman. He is a nationally recognized authority on mutual funds, index investing, and asset allocation. And we are talking about seven of the biggest investment decisions. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. 
But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later, we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing. And there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later, you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey everybody, as you are listening to this episode, I am at the Chautauqua Conference in Bogota, Colombia with my friends J.L. Collins, Christy and Bryce from Millennial Revolution, and Katie and Alan Donegan. I also will be doing a book launch party October 6th in San Diego. I'll be attending the Camp Fi San Diego or Camp Fi Southwest. That's going to be in Julian, San Diego starting October 7th, but the day before October 6th, we're going to do a book launch party. More details will be forthcoming. We are talking to Paul Merriman, who created the Merriman Financial Education Foundation dedicated to providing investors of all ages with free information and tools to make informed decisions in their own best interests and successfully implement the retirement savings program. And we are talking about the seven biggest investment decisions. In the first part, we talked about choosing the best equity classes, how much to invest in each equity class, and how much equities versus fixed income we should have. The next three biggest decisions really focus on withdrawal strategy. So how to take retirement distributions and how how much to take out of retirement investments. And last but not least, selecting a lifetime glide, glide path. Those are four, five, and six. I feel like they go together. Let's talk about withdrawal strategies without getting into the weeds. Do we not spend enough time as young people thinking about how we're actually going to withdraw later on? Well, I wish people would, because that would tell you how much money you need to have, which would include at least a nod to inflation so that they had taken everything that needs to be considered as a part of their decision-making process. But I think that the, the, the whole thing about distributions is the least covered topic, because it is, it is more complex. I will just say this. It is complex enough that I think we have almost 100 tables that are focused <laughs> on distribution because you can take three, four, five, or 6% out. Believe it or not, they all work under different conditions. How much money you have is going is, is to drive how much you can take out. How much money you want to leave is going to drive how much you can take out. And so we look, we break it down basically into fixed distributions and variable. And the fixed, and we have nine different equity portfolios that we then show in all these combinations of fixed income and equity. And then we show, so you could have 20% in equities, 30, 40, 50, and you could be all S&P 500, or you could be four fund US. You have all these different combinations. And on a fixed strategy, what we believe, Jordan, is that the person has not oversaved. Because if they've oversaved, they can use a better strategy, as far as I'm concerned, by the way. But if they haven't oversaved, they got to make sure that money lasts because they're going to have to adjust that amount that they need to take out by inflation. So what we do is we apply inflation and we, we show what happens with the 3% distribution, then four and five and six, so that you can see that 6% is really dangerous. In fact, it should probably not be attempted mm -hmm. if you don't have enough. On the other hand, if you have more than enough, you get to use 
the flexible distribution or the variable distribution. And that's what my wife and I use. We don't care about inflation. We oversaved enough that we've just said, okay, we're going to take out 5% a year. Whatever the last year did, it's and it was good, we'll get a, a, ra- a raise. If it went down, we're going to get a little cut in pay. But we already know we're getting more than we than we need to have. And so you could even take 6% out in that condition. And so we show all those tables again with those different levels of, of distributions. What people might be amazed at is if you compare the S&P 500 as the equity and fixed income and, and, and you take out 6%, you're on your way to going broke in about less than 30 years which for a lot of people, that's fine because they're not going to live that long. But for a lot of people, they also want to leave money for others. If you did the same thing, but you took the variable distribution of, of 5% or 6%, it goes through the entire 52-year period and leaves whoever survives you a lot of money. And the only reason it does it's because you take one of the most important defensive steps that one can take, and that is to reduce how much you take out when the market goes down. And I'm married to a lady who enjoys spending. I enjoy saving. She knows that two out of three years, she's going to get more to spend. I know that one out of three years, probably, we're going to take less, and I'm going to be, you know, I'm say, whew, glad we took less because who knows how much worse it could be. So, so there are all these little, there are little nuances about both what the financial benefit is, what the emotional benefit is in terms of worry, and what the relationship between two people can be if they have found a way to take money out that they both agree treats them fairly. So the last of the big investment decisions is selecting the best mutual funds and ETFs. We talked a little bit about specifically what these index funds cover, but is there any more information there? Are you talking about specific companies? Are you talking about fees? What do you mean by that last point? Well, in order to do for people what we promise, and that is to give them what we consider to be the most important information for them to be a legitimate do-it-yourself investor, we feel like we have to name the names of the funds they should be in. Whether they're at Vanguard and they're using the mutual funds or they're at Vanguard and they're using the ETFs. Same thing at Fidelity. Same thing at Schwab. Same thing at T. Rowe Price. Now, having said that, we really think the best return is going to come from the best-in-class ETFs. We all know that ETFs have some tax advantages, and you can get all the same diversification that you can in mutual funds. But when we're looking to build a portfolio of any of these equity asset classes, we want the ETF that best replicates what we're looking for. So we're not looking for a small cap value that the average size of the company is $6 billion. We're looking for the average size $3 billion or less. We're looking for a certain value orientation. We're looking for a more deeply discounted value when we can get it. And if we can get some additional factor investing with quality. So that has led us in several cases to go to Avantis and and use their funds. And and last year, uh, their small cap value was up 42% plus and DFA who they've always been my heroes, they were up over 39. But most people in the small cap value were up around 30%. And it's because of the loading, not of a commission, but the loading of the right exposure. And Chris sits down and goes through all of the ETFs each year. He also doesn't want to be jumping in and out because there are tax implications. So that's the sensitivity. But Chris Pedersen has done a great job. And if you wanted two funds like an S&P 500 and small cap value or the four fund U.S., which is large cap value and large cap 
blend and small cap value and small cap blend, the ETFs are there to use to build that portfolio. And all of that's available at paulmerriman.com, I assume, where all that research is being done so that your average person can go and look and see the comparisons of the ETFs. So I'd like to end the conversation, Paul, by coming back to something you said. You were contrasting my book, which is Taking Stock, which is all about the philosophy and broad general strokes versus what you work on, your books, your website, is a lot more granular. The specifics of how you as an investor specifically invest. Talk about how those two fit together, because certainly I get stuck with, okay, we can learn how to invest that's knowable. For me, the harder part is trying to figure out what to do with that potential energy, that tool of money that we're creating. Well, I will tell you what the book did to me. I didn't really understand what the book was going to be. And what I got out of it was it made me look at me about some, I think, very important topics, time being one of them, because I devote way more time on my project than I should. I also think certainly identifying the the different kinds of people and how those people have a tendency to invest, that too hit home with me. And it made me realize how much fear is a part of how I invest. And the difficult thing for a do-it-yourself investor is understanding yourself. And I think your book does a really good job of, of helping people in a, in a very simple way. It, it, it does not depend on any complex subjects or, or studies, although you did reference some interesting studies in the book, in helping people think this through. And if somehow we can get the personal part right and also get the numbers part right, I think that's the winning combination for an investor for the long term. And I think your book will help people be a better long-term investor because they're going to get closer to understanding yourself. And by the way, for advisors, when I was an advisor, I never knew whether people were telling me the truth. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could see their tax returns and I could see some things there, or I could look at their, their statement from wherever they had, and I would know some stuff. But when you ask them the tough questions about their personalities uh, around money, there are a lot of screwed up people who really do not want to face, when I say screwed up, I include myself there, that have a hard time facing these realities of, of this relationship we have with money. I know that whenever my wife says, I want to do this, you know what the first question I'm asking her is. How much is it going to cost? That's a terrible thing to ask. But it's something that I have to think more seriously about in, in being a better partner with her for the rest of our lives. And that's it's just that something about your book that when I knew that you had learned all of this from people who were going through the last days of their life, and you were working in hospice, uh, I recently lost one of my best friends. In fact, Lynn and I started Global Help, providing doctors overseas with free medical publications, mostly in the orthopedic area. And he decided in his 90s that he had enough of life. He had some physical problems, and, and, and he stopped eating, and he stopped drinking water, and he became amazingly peaceful. I will tell you, in those last days when we spoke, and I had one extended conversation with him personally for about an hour and a half. He had never had a better sense of humor. He was able to laugh at things he'd never laughed at about himself, by the way, which I found fascinating. 
but I can tell you, he was really proud of what he had achieved. Mm. But he had somebody talking to him who knew about all those achievements, who was there rooting those memories on. But he worried a lot about money over the years. He was not worried about money in those final days. And so I, I I learned a lot of lessons out of your book, and that's what a good book is about as far as I'm concerned. You know, I've spent a lot of time learning how, and, you know, I have to thank you, Paul, because you are one of the leading voices in helping us figure out how to do this, how to invest. And it's something that befuddles many, many of us. In fact, it keeps us from taking charge and it causes us to put our money in the hands of someone else. And as well meaning as financial advisors are, it always makes sense that we understand how it's done. And I love how people like you teach us how. The reason why I wrote this book is because I just felt like there weren't enough of us talking about why. And a lot of times the why informs how we manage the how. And that was the piece that I always felt was missing. And that's why I wrote this book is because I wanted to get more philosophical. I knew that I was not going to be the voice of the how. I never was going to be. But having my experience with dying patients, I could help inform the why. And I've personally found in my life and the people that I've worked with is if you have a nice clear vision of why when you start building your financial structure, it serves you better. Specifically, the things you're talking about, when you're talking about how much fixed income should I have versus how much equities, how aggressive do I want to be with my small cap value versus S&P 500 index. If you come into those type of discussions knowing your why, what this is going to serve you it really helps inform how much risk and what types of decisions you want to make. And so I just, I felt like those two conversations go so well together. And let me add a why, because you just brought something up that isn't even in my book about the $12 million decisions. There is a huge why take the time to learn how to make what are not complex decisions. The decisions about investing are far simpler than the emotional strategies around money. I promise. It's it's in the book, okay? But I want people to understand that the why, it means that we should take the time to learn. I address college kids. I say, how would you feel if a really great investment advisor would work for you for the rest of your life? And they're only going to charge you 1%. But they're going to do all the right things. The right things we could teach you how to do on your own, but they'll do it. And you might not do it, or you might not take the time to really learn. I want you to know that that 1%, and on your first $6,000 means they're going to charge you $60. That 1% over your lifetime is probably, if you're a decent saver, not even a great saver, It's going to cost you $5 million. Now, why do I want to, why do I want to keep that 5 million? Because it changes what I do in retirement. It changes what I can do for others while I'm alive. It changes what I do for others after we've passed on and all it requires. and, and, And I think about what you went through to be a doctor. And I don't know how many years it would teach that you would have to really study to be a doctor to take care of yourself. But that's what we're asking people to do, is to study enough to take care of one person. And it's probably no more than 20 to 50 hours at the most. And the payoff for a young person, $5 million, they have a hard time believing that. But it's more likely, by the way, than winning the lottery by far. Well, Paul Merriman, I wanted to thank you for being on the show. If you want to learn more about the how, you can pick up my book, Taking Stock, A Hospice Doctor's Advice on Financial Independence, Building Wealth, and Living a Regret-Free Life, pretty much anywhere books are sold. 
Paul, if they want to learn more about the how, what is the best way for them to get information on your latest book, as well as some of those great calculators that you have available for people and the ETF information for people who want to know more? Absolutely. Well, the book, you can pay for it at Amazon if you wish. I would rather you get it free. You just, you, you'll just go to our website, paul at paulmerriman.com, and I'll give you a special link if you would like, Jordan, where they can go and they can order the book free as a PDF, or they can, or, and they can also order free the audio book. And so, and the reason I want you to have it free is because then you can easily pass it along to other people. It's easy to, to, to forward a PDF to your kids and, and other folks that you think it might help. And that's We're Talking Millions, 12 Simple Ways to Supercharge Your Retirement, correct? That's your most that's latest, right. your latest that's book? That's right. Good. Good. And then all of the other things that we have to offer, the, the Lifetime Investment Calculator, it is masterfully created by a young person who's working in these, he's on the FIRE movement track. He, he is a young computer guy, at, and, and he developed a wonderful calculator that not only allows you to use all of our data to crank your own numbers through, but you can even go into our tables and say, look, I think those years, are they're not going to be that good in the future. You can cut everything by one half of 1%, by 2%, and see how you would have done over a lifetime with those changes. So that is something you just go to paulmerriman.com and, and access. Uh, our job, our job, they're the only thing that we do for money. Well, I'll say that we don't, we don't do anything for money, but we do have people who do have donated money to us. But the fact is the best thing that people can do to help our foundation is pass our information along to others. That is more important than money. Jordan, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here with you and your listeners. We're going to share this, by the way, with our listeners, because uh, I certainly want them to know more about your work. You're certainly having an impact on a lot of people. And thanks for letting me share what we do with your folks. If you hadn't realized, this is actually going to be a dual episode released in tandem, both on the Earn and Invest podcast and on Paul's podcast. Also, Paul, the name of your podcast is? Sound Investing. Sound Investing. So you'll be able to see it in both places. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On my behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Paul Merriman. That's a wrap. All right. I usually leave the audio running just for a few minutes as we chat afterwards. It becomes part of the sure. after show. Sure. Um, that was excellent. I, I, Paul, I love talking to you about investing because I feel like you take what, again, everyone feels is so complicated and difficult and you bring such clarity. And I know because I've messed around with your tables on your website that there's just an abundance of good, easy to follow information there. Yeah. It's 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 too much for a lot of people, yeah. uh, and and um, and the reason I like the numbers rather than graphs is because the graphs hide the bad times. Yeah, yeah. And and I just want people. I used to call the, my fine tuning tables the fright simulator <laughs> because you really want people to know how bad it's going to be so they're ready for it. But but thank you. Yeah, seeing it's so eye-opening, looking at the yearly S&P 500 returns and then looking at the small cap value returns and then looking at the mix and seeing how the volatility is actually somewhat reduced, right? We see the S&P 500 goes down 40%, small cap maybe goes down 30%, but the mix of them goes down 35% or what have you. And yep. hands down, you start looking at this and going, oh yeah, you know, the returns are higher and the lows are not nearly as bad and it's like it's really a win-win when you start looking at it right and when you and we break this by the way we break this down uh on this for all these different strategies but for the two fund us that's the small cap value s p if you look at the 2000 through 2009 
that was a negative about 1% for the S&P. It wasn't a home run, but it was 4.2% a year yeah, for the, yeah. the combination of the two. And, and, and other than that, in most cases, the combination did better. Uh, Thank so, God there's index funds, right? So at the beginning yes. of your career, there weren't, you know, you no. didn't have these opportunities where you could say, aha, I want a small cap value fund. Am I going to go to Fidelity? Am I going to go to Vanguard? Am I going to go, right? It, it, you know, back in the day, you had to actually try to figure out how to pick some of these stocks or find where they were available. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's fascinating because investing, I'm sure that you've heard or seen this lots of places. It has never been more efficient. It has never been more profitable. It has never been as client-centric as it is today. And you think it all that extra money that we're making because of low expenses and lower taxes because of Roths and 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 uh, uh, all that stuff. I didn't have any of that yeah. when I came into the industry in the 60s. Now we have the problem with young people having enough to save. And all it takes is $365 a year. Matter of fact, if you take a newborn child, now I'm going to give $10,000 to my new granddaughter for her. It's going to, it's going to pay for her Roth IRA for the rest of her life. That's wow. what I believe because wow. she won't tap into it until it's grown. Mm -hmm. Maybe she's 16 or 17 years of age, but, um, uh, $365 put aside. For 70 years, okay, newborn child, 365 for 70 years at 12%, not 14, which is what it did the last 52 years, is over a million dollars. Yeah. Another 365, the year that they are two. And every year you put away 365 to pay for one year of retirement. Yeah. Now, yeah. who knows what the world will be like? I mean, that's. It, it's it's ludicrous to make up that story, but God, everybody says, I wish I had started when I was younger. Yeah. yeah and I true. wish I knew what I know now. Well, I know what I know yeah. now. Yeah, and, and, time, <laughs> and I'm never going to be younger. Time is so powerful. Yes. It is so powerful being ahead of the curve. Like yeah. if you do one thing right, right? Yeah. If you figure the time issue and start saving early, you will find a world of opportunities that you wouldn't have had. It's just, I mean, it's, it's, it's the secret. And, and, and life in my case was most beautiful in, in terms of my business. When my, my son was with me in business. Yeah. So it, it was, I actually gave the company over half of it away to all my kids, but my son got more than the others because he worked with me for years oh. And, and, uh, uh, this thing I'm doing with my granddaughter for my granddaughter, it's going to be a partnership. I'm yeah. a partner and I hope to be, uh, I'm a silent partner, but I'm going to be in there teaching as best I can. If I live long enough to do that. And my daughter is, she can do it too. But when my grandkids and they all have they all have $10,000 packages, but this is the first time I've set it up this way. Um, when, when they retire and they all have whatever this stuff grows to, they are not going to forget their grandmother and their yeah. grandfather <laughs> every year. They're going to mm -hmm. remember. And I can tell you as much as I love my, my grandparents, I rarely think of them. I do think yeah. of them, but and I think lots about purpose and I, I think very much about how we affect the world around us. What you are doing, the tools you are making available and the Frank talk about this will affect thousands who will do a better job, who will have yes. children, who will have, I mean, what you're putting out there into the world will affect many people who will never know your name, but the Genesis of the boon of having some financial power will I come totally from agree. all of yep. this hard work you did. And um, 
That's- I think it's just such a beautiful thing. Like when we dedicate and you clearly do you don't do this for the money. You've dedicated yourself to this because it has yeah. deep and important meaning to you. And to me, that's what a good life really looks like. Talk about my book and what, what living really looks like. That's yeah. what it looks like to me. I thought about that as I read your book. I thought I, I I'm in the right. I'm in the, yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Certainly what I'm doing, I'm in the right place. Yeah. How I treat money. I may not be exactly in the right place but but uh but we can we can all get yeah. better it's certainly i mean i i will tell you hands down that's the goal that I, the reason i wrote this book the reason why i do this podcast is somewhere somehow if these things can help someone the ripple effect over yes. the decades and centuries could be huge and they don't need to know my name but if i if i helped and I think you probably feel the same I t- way. I totally mm. think you're doing doing that, Jordan. And for what it's worth, Chris Pedersen doesn't make one penny. Yeah. It's that amazing. Balls doesn't I, wake, yeah. make one penny. And Craig Apple, the mm-hmm. kid from Amazon who brought us the calculator, mm-hmm. he gave it to us. Yeah. And he's it, continuing to update it and to maintain it. Yeah, ultimately, when you're living a purposeful life, the in- money becomes only as important as it functions as a tool yep. to allow you to do those amazing purposeful things. Yeah. And um that's it. You know, thank God we've gotten in the people who've all contributed have gotten to the place where really if they get money or not get money for it, it's not going to change the yeah. fact that this is important. Yeah. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. 